How we doing? Amen. Amen. Um, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about a new birth. A new birth. A man by the name of Saul and his new birth. Um, I don't know. How many, how many people remember your new birth? How many people remember the moment where Jesus saved you? you amen. I, I can remember a just a real decisive moment in my life. I mean, sometimes it doesn't always, for a lot of people, it's not, excuse me, guys, sorry. Let's fix this right now. Try to at least. Sometimes it's not as decisive for everybody. It was decisive for me. It was decisive for me. The moment where Jesus Christ intervened in my life, um, it was, it was a, a shift in everything, right? The things that I valued, the things that I held dear, the things that I treasured, and I had been going to church. I grew up a preacher's kid. Had been going to church, you know, knew the whole routine of church and was there and showing up, you know, and just kind of going through the motions and, and, and not really necessarily feeling anything. My dad's preaching his guts out every single week, you know, and I'm just kind of looking at him with this glazed, glazed over look like, yeah, whatever. And then there was just a moment in my life where circumstances, trials, tribulations, you know, even in a high school, even at a high school age, there were things going on that kind of that kind of centered my focus. And it was this moment I was in church. I wasn't even at my dad's church. I'm at somebody else's church. And the gospel all of a sudden is preached and proclaimed. And that's it. That's it. And and God met me there that day. I saw Jesus for who he was. And I've never been the same since. And there's never been a doubt, right? You know, even, at, even as you wander and you stray and you, you kind of have highs and lows and peaks and valleys, there's never been a doubt of what I, of what I witnessed that day, nor the God that I, that I began to, uh, nor the, the, nor there's ever been a doubt about how my life changed that day. It's never a doubt. And, 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 and when I, when I think about that, the reason, the reason I brought that to my, brought that to your attention is because I'm looking at, I'm looking at Saul this morning and I'm just seeing this kind of just matter of fact, without a doubt moment where God meets him, where, where Christ meets him. And this man is never the same. He is radically different from that point going forward. When you think about it, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that we can learn from Saul's new, new birth. I just want to highlight a few things. The first thing I want to highlight is that Saul's new birth is totally unexpected. When you look at verse 1, it says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to, to the synagogues at Damascus and so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether it be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, we know this man from our earlier works in Acts. When you go back to Acts chapter 7, the death of Stephen or the martyrdom of Stephen, the murder of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen because of his proclamation and because of his preaching of Jesus Christ, the person that the people that stoned him, they all took off their clothes and laid their garments at this man's feet. The person whose feet they laid their garments at was this guy, Saul. Saul was, Saul was so respected and so revered that they laid their garments sort of in a sign of approval at his feet to say, look at what we've done. 
We've done good work. Almost as if to hear him say, good job, boys. Way to stone that guy for proclaiming Jesus. But what we're about to learn in this story is that Saul is the actual embodiment of Stephen's prayers. Stephen desired to be used even in death as a catalyst for the advancement of God's kingdom. And Saul is part of the living proof that Stephen was used. Saul, even speaking about Stephen in in Acts chapter 22 later on, he says that when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him, letting us know that this was a moment for Paul, of Saul, rather. At this point, Paul, Saul, Saul, Paul. I'm going to use Saul for most uh, most of our sermon this morning. But this was, this was a, a moment for him that, that stood out when he was receiving those garments. But before this moment of salvation, we can already see that Saul was on the, on the complete and opposite side of God's kingdom. In chapter 1 and 2, or chapters nine, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, Saul is on a vicious, vicious, violent spree against the church. Traveling towns, distant towns. Damascus is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. He's traveling towns and, 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 and looking for anybody, man or woman, who profess Jesus, taking them away in chains, throwing them in prison, or even sometimes being responsible for their execution. He's a zealous enforcer for the religious leaders. He leaves no doubt concerning his commitment against Christ. So this is a man who starts his journey against Christ. This is a man who starts his journey on this road, despising Christ and all those who would profess him to be Lord and Savior. This is not a man who starts out on the road thinking about serving Jesus. This is not a man who's kind of, sort of, on the way to responding to Jesus. Some people think that the journey to Jesus has to be one of many small steps with a lot of cleanup along the way. Right? Some people think that the journey to Jesus has to be me getting prepared to respond to Jesus. Me getting my life in order. Me not cursing as much as I used to. Or me not drinking as much as I used to. Me learning how to treat other people better. And then along that way, once I get those things together, then, then I'm ready to meet Jesus. Saul is none of that. He is on his way to destroy more Christians. There is no affection for Christ in this text. And yet Christ meets him. See, see, Jesus' gospel transformation doesn't require your personal preparation. It doesn't require you to be preparing for the moment that he transforms you. It just requires that you see him along the way. And that's exactly what happens in this next verse. It's here that we see that Saul's new birth begins with this exposure of his sin. His transformation, his new birth begins with an exposure of his sin. In verse 3 it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. See, for Saul, this is where new birth actually begins. The exposure of his sin, the awareness of his sin before God. 
See, this, this blinding light shines, and, and there, in the very next words he hears is, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, take notice of how Jesus stands in solidarity with his church in this persecution. Jesus doesn't merely sympathize or empathize with the church and saying, why are you persecuting my people? I really care about them. Jesus stands in solidarity. He identifies with his church completely. And he says, why are you persecuting me? When you harm the church, you are harming me. It's very important to who Christ, uh, to, uh, to understand who Christ is identifying with. Matthew 25 uses a similar language. He, he puts, he puts, he, he, he paints this picture about the final judgment. And he says, there's people, there are righteous and there are wicked. And as the Lord scatters, or as the Lord divides them and separates them on that day, he says to the righteous, I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And the righteous says, when did we do this, Jesus? And he says, when you did this to my brothers, you did this to me. And then he tells the wicked, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. And they say, when did we do this, Jesus? He says, when you did not do this to my brothers, you did not do this for me. See, as Jesus pronounces eternal life or eternal damnation to each group, He identifies with the people of God. He says, the way you treat the people of God is a reflection of how you're treating me. Those who make up the church, when we treat them wrong, it's like treating God wrong. Just sit on that for a second. Those who comprise and make up the church, when we treat them wrong, Jesus says, it's like you're treating me wrong. And so as Jesus speaks to Saul, he is showing him that the ultimate one who is offended in his persecution against the church is Jesus himself. Saul's new birth begins with this reality that I'm a sinner in need of saving, that I've offended a holy God. See, the Old Testament king David had a similar reflection in Psalm chapter 51. He was a man who committed adultery, stole a man's wife. He was a man who committed murder, took that same man and put him on the front lines to try to hide his sin. and ended up having that man killed on the front lines of war, a war that he was fighting on the king's behalf. And David, when he began to unpack all of his sorrow and all of his remorse for his sin in Psalm 51, he he says this, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, against you, God. Yes, yes, I've committed adultery. Yes, I've taken a man's wife. Yes, I've murdered that man. Yes, I've created uh, this, this, this child out of wedlock. Yes, I've done all of these different things, but it was you who I ultimately sinned against. See, our violations of God's law, even when they harm and they impact the people around us, are first and foremost violent offenses against God himself. 
our lust struggles and our struggles with sex outside of God's covenant design for marriage or our short temper problems or our mouth problems, the gossip that we claim we can't help but share or the word in retaliation that we claim we can't help but give, our greed problem, the greed problem with our pockets and the greed problem with our bellies. All of these prob, all of these sins, all of these transgressions are not just transgressions against the people around us, and they're not just simply even transgressions against us in terms of harming our harming us ourselves, but they are transgressions first and foremost against God. This is what Saul is facing in the moment on the road, and he knows it. And this is where new birth begins. It begins with this reality that we've offended God and we are in need of saving grace from this God. See, if you are on a plane and you think you're heading to Miami for a little vacation, you don't start shouting on the plane for somebody to save you. It's only after somebody takes a peek into the cockpit and they realize that both of the pilots have died that they start screaming, somebody save us. And so, and so the idea of saving doesn't really come until we understand how bad we are. The, underst- the idea of saving doesn't even enter our minds until we understand our condition. Saul sees his condition in this moment. Why have you persecuted me, the God of the universe? And at that point, he's like, I need saving. I'm on the wrong side of the tracks here. It's the same with our condition. Until we realize our true condition, we don't ask for saving. So that's where new birth begins. But it's not where it ends. You look at verse 9 or verse 6 of chapter 9. It says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without salt, neither ate nor drank. See, I find this detail, this small detail so fascinating. Saul's physical eyes were open, yet he couldn't see anything. However, it didn't seem to matter, did it? <laughs> because another pair of eyes had been opened. Another pair of eyes were open on that day. He goes on later on in Ephesians to describe those eyes. When he is praying for the Ephesian church, Paul says this about that church, that prayer that he's praying for them. He says, I pray that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is his immeasurable greatness or the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul says, I want the eyes of your heart to be open so you can see Jesus as he is. See, it's this vision that we think about when we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It has nothing to do with our physical eyes. It's the eyes of our heart that's been opened to see and realize Jesus for who he is. There's another thing that strikes me about Saul's transformation. Oftentimes I hear Christianity referred to as a sort of crutch for weak-bodied or weak-minded people. I hear that, that really Christianity is just only a product created by people trying to cope 
with the brokenness in their lives, the, depress- the depression of their lives, the sad state, the sad and sorry state of their lives. And I hear oftentimes that it helps weak people maintain some form of hope in their miserable lives. That it's a crutch in that way. And let me say first that, that I think that is certainly true, but not in the way that people think it is. See, notice the conditions upon which Saul's transformation happens as he is riding towards Damascus. He is not what the world would classify as weak. He is not what the world would classify as weak in body nor weak in mind. Saul is at the peak of his powers, if you will, when he is knocked on the ground that day. It's not merely physical weakness that causes Saul to turn to Christ. It's not merely physical desperation that, or depression that causes Saul to turn to Christ. It's not merely a mental weakness that causes Saul to turn to Christ. Why does Saul so drastically change then? Because he sees Jesus. See, those that say Christianity is weak and feeble have no answer to a man like Saul. The man is on the road to Damascus with wealth in his pocket. The man is on the road to Damascus with privilege in his hands, comfort and power. And he trades all of that in an instant. Who does that? And why would somebody do that? See, how strange would it be if a man or a woman spent their entire life dutifully and unapologetically murdering and imprisoning people of another ethnicity and culture and went into the mountains one day, came out of the mountains that same day, all of a sudden willing to suffer persecution with that same group? Who does that? Christianity wasn't about Saul needing something to uphold his miserable life. It was about Saul seeing Jesus. That's what happened. The reality of Christianity is a kind that the reality that Christianity is a kind of crutch um, is true, however, because when the eyes are open to truly see Jesus, not only is the greatness of the Savior exposed, but the weakness of those in need of that Savior is exposed. Matt Chandler, the lead pastor at the Village Church, he gives this quote talking about this ideal of a crutch. He says, I often hear unbelievers make the statement that Christianity is a crutch. It is a statement intended to insult believers, to imply that only weak people need religion. And in our culture, it's a statement that hits his mark more than not because our culture despises weakness. We don't want to be seen as weak. We want to be perceived as strong. So when I hear someone say that Christianity is a crutch, I actually agree. I'm a guy whose legs are broken. I need that crutch. When I hear someone say Christianity is for the feeble-minded, I agree. I am feeble-minded. I have a feeble mind. I need the gospel to give me a right mind. When I hear someone say Christianity is something that weak people need, I agree. Weak people need it. I am weak and so are you. You don't just, you just don't know that you're weak. This is the message of Romans chapter 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he closes with this. Christianity is a crutch and that's good news because we're all crippled. It's the only crutch that can bear the weight of our brokenness. I pray God will open up your eyes to, to open your eyes to your weakness and that you would finally lean on the crutch instead of hobbling around on the busted femur of your own righteousness. And seeing Christ, Saul's natural vision was briefly impaired, but he finally received his spiritual vision. The eyes of his heart was open to Christ's holiness and greatness And the eyes of his heart was open to his own sinfulness and insignificance. And it is for that reason that the change happens. Does that make sense? 
See, this radical change begins with simple acts of obedience as well. You, you, you move into mo- moving out of this moment where Saul encounters Jesus, sees Jesus, and then immediately we see acts of obedience begin to spring forth out of this encounter. Acts that initially would have seemed foolish beforehand. Jesus instructs Saul to go to the city, for example, and wait for instruction, and he does. Immediately, Saul moves from seeking to persecute Jesus to seeking to obey Jesus. We look at verses 10 through 19, we, we, we hear about this man by the name of Ananias. It says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision named, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is chosen, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, because of the transformation that has come as a result of Paul seeing Christ for who he really is, he is now seeking to obey Jesus when he gives instruction seeking his face diligently, fasting and praying as he awaits his call. We even hear about his call in in verse 15 where it says that he's going to be a chosen instrument of mine, which sounds good, but then we hear that I will show him that uh, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So it is a good and amazing call, but it is a it is a dangerous and it's a hard call. And yet Paul is still going to obey it. Why? Because he saw Jesus. How does, how does Saul answer Jesus' call? Ananias lays hands on him. His sight is restored. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes and gets baptized. And then basically after that, he says, let's go. We see the evidence of Saul's new birth and transformation in his willingness to obey God even when the call is a difficult one. We even see evidence of Ananias' new birth in the willingness to obey God, even when it's a difficult call. Ananias starts with, here I am, Lord. That's pretty much all of our postures, right? That's any professing Christian in America's posture. Here I am, Lord, ready to be used by you. All of us would like to believe that we are making ourselves available for the Lord's calling and the Lord's use. But we see in the next verses that Ananias isn't just simply declaring, here I am, Lord, but he's actually demonstrating his availability. Because when he says, here I am, Lord, Jesus says, I'm glad you said that. I got somebody I need you to come see. And Ananias' initial response is probably all of our initial responses. Here I am, Lord. Okay, I need you to go see Saul. Hold up, Jesus. Right? Who? Are you talking about the same Saul that, that, that I've heard about? And Jesus, of course, says yes. And Ananias responds in obedience. But why? 
But, I mean, Ananias responds in obedience. So the question is, why does he respond in obedience? He responds in obedience because he sees Jesus. Not just with the physical eyes. He sees Jesus with the eyes of his heart. For the same reason that Saul responds in obedience, because he sees Jesus. When you look at the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, this guy says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay, well, are you following the commandments? Yeah, I've been doing that since I was a little baby, right? Been following the commandments since I was in city like kids. It's like, okay, great. Well, how about you um, sell, all, sell all your goods or give all your wealth away? Come follow me. I'll give you true riches. And the Bible says that the rich young, rich young ruler responds to that disheartened. And he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. See, what happened? What happened? What happened? The eyes of Ananias, the eyes of their heart, the eyes of Saul, their eyes were open to see Jesus. But the only thing that the ruler, the rich young ruler could see with the eyes of his heart was his money. See, one of the most harmful assumptions that we've established in the Christian faith in America is, that the, is the assumption that the call to discipleship is supposed to be easy. Obedience may call us, folks, to challenging things, but if the eyes of our heart see Jesus, we will find obeying Jesus more precious than our security, than our safety, than our success, than our sexual cravings, than our appetites, and even than the hard calling. And so even through the hard callings and even in much stumbling and with much falling and stumbling through and even with much hesitation sometimes and much trepidation, we will still look to follow the call. Why? Because we see Jesus. So let me ask you, how do you respond when Jesus sends you? How do you respond when Jesus calls you? How do you respond when Jesus instructs you? Because, see, how we respond in that moment is probably the best indicator of what our heart's eyes can most clearly see in that moment. You understand that? How we respond to Jesus tells us what our hearts are looking at. Paul, or Saul, rather, he goes into Acts chapter 9, verse 20, proclaiming Jesus We see that radical transformation leads not only to obedience, but it leads to proclamation. Verse 20 through 22, he's going around telling people that Jesus is the son of God. All heard him. They were like, who is, wait a second, this the same guy? He's going around and he's confounding the Jews. He's he's, he's debating with with the Hellenists and and all of a sudden they're like, man, this guy has knowledge that, 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 that we can't even put together what's going on. He's in Damascus. This, is the, this was the same city that he was traveling to in order to deliver letters. Requested that people turn, uh, turn themselves in or to pull people out of their houses, pull moms and pull fathers out of their homes and put them in jail or have them executed. This is the same city that he was going to for that. And now it's become the city where his gospel ministry is birthed. And notice the words in verse 20 of chapter 9. It says, immediately. Immediately he moves from persecution to proclamation. Our transformation ensures that we have a story to tell and a gospel to proclaim. 
We move out in our transformation. We don't. Our, tra- our transformation, your transformation, is not silent. You look at verse 26 through 37, and you, or at least 26, we'll, we'll, we'll read, to 20, read to 27 for now. But we see that Saul's new birth shows the power of the resurrected Christ. It says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, verse 26, he attempted to join the apostles. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. When we begin Saul's account in verse 1, He was breathing threats and seeking Christians to imprison and murder for their allegiance to Jesus. But by the time we reach the end of this account, it is Saul who is being hunted. It is Saul that has to leave Damascus. It is Saul that has to secretly leave Jerusalem because people are trying to kill him because of his allegiance to Jesus. Notice that as he arrives in Jerusalem, even though word has probably already reached the disciples in Jerusalem, they are still having nothing to do with the man. Are you tracking with that? Even though word has probably already come through Ananias and come through the other disciples that, hey, no, man, he's in Damascus. He's killing it for the Lord, man. He's sharing the gospel. People are amazed. Man, you got to, yeah, man, you got to meet this guy. And they're like, nah, we don't want to meet him. That's okay. Right? Y'all can, keep, y'all can keep him in Damascus. We'll give y'all a few more weeks just to fill them out, right? So, so they still want nothing to do with the man. Have you ever witnessed one of those testimony stories that leaves you like, who got saved? Nah, 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 right? You just don't, I mean, you just don't believe it. It's so, it's so radically different. The, the, the woman or the man is so radically transformed that you're like, I'm not sure about that. Let me give this dude a few weeks. That dude still owe me money, right? Give me a few, few more weeks to just watch him. See, try to picture watching a Star Wars movie and Darth Vader, right, one of the greatest cinematic villains of, of all movie history is leaving his Death Star construction project, and he receives words that the, that, that the rebels are hiding out in this particular location. So he takes his little TIE fighter, he flies down to the location that the rebels are meeting, and, and, and so he has the coordinates, he reroutes the course, he's flying to the location, and then when he gets there, he's like, all right, I'm here, and I want to fight with you guys. What? You want to know what happened on the trip, right? You're asking yourself, okay, what transpired that now Darth Vader wants to fight with the rebels once he gets to the location? What happened between the Death Star and the hideout? Does that make sense? And this is how we see Paul. It's like, okay, Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he's like one of the Christianity's greatest enemies. And by the time he gets to Damascus, he's one of Christianity's greatest allies. And so they're like, okay, what happened on the road between where you, where you started and Damascus? And what happened is Paul saw Jesus. This man is so different that people are finding it hard to believe that it's real. But see, that's the power of the resurrected Savior. What other explanation do we have for a historical figure like Saul? A man on top of his profession, a man carrying power, a man carrying prestige, a man carrying wealth, giving it all away on the trip 
other. Christian serves us on that road. He, uh, other than the explanation that he met the one who died for his sins. No other explanation serves us other than the explanation that he met the one who paid the price for his transgressions. He met the one who rose from the grave with all power in his hands. He met Jesus. That's what serves us as we try to figure out what happened to this man. Saul's encounter with the resurrected Savior is so powerful and so life-altering that it doesn't just simply alter his internal, internal emotions shake up a few external behaviors, but it literally reshapes the identity of the man. He is no longer ever even known for what he used to be known for. Has your encounter with Jesus so transformed you at a fundamental level that people no longer consider you the man or woman that you used to be? You see, what, you see new birth drills deeper than adding an hour-long Sunday appointment to your weekly schedule that we call worship. See, new birth drills deeper into a, at a fundamental level in your soul. It drills deeper into a more, into a rawer and purer place in you. One former atheist that, turned, that was turned uh, Christian captures her life since her Christian conversion in this way. She said, and I'm quoting, I am undone by love. I'm sorry, I am more undone by love or kindness or friendship than, than I would have thought possible. She continues and she says, this morning I read a piece in Texas Monthly that literally sank me to my knees at how broken this world is. And yet how stubbornly resilient and joyful we can be in the face of that brokenness. She says, I never possessed much chill, to be honest. Now I have none whatsoever. There are times that I believe wholly in God now, but don't always do what he wants. Or I put hard conversations with him off until I've done the thing I wanted to do. She says, but my Christian conversion has granted me no simplicity. It has complicated all of my relationships. It has changed how I feel about money. It has changed how I, um, or rather, it has messed up my public persona. And it's made me wonder if I should even be on social media sometimes. And she says, obviously, all of this is beautiful. The point that she's making is that ever since Christ came into her life, everything has been turned upside down. And that she's no longer the woman that she used to be. What about your life changes? What about your life has changed since Jesus has met you? Or to ask that question another way, is there much difference between your life now with Jesus and your life without him? What pursuits in your life would be different without Jesus, with him? What, what goals in your life would be different without Jesus versus with him? What, how would you spend your time differently without Jesus versus with him? How would you spend your money differently with Jesus versus without him? How is anything different in your life with Jesus versus without Jesus? Saul's life, his ambition, his allegiance all change because he meets Jesus. Lastly, you look at the verse, last few verses, it says he went in, verse 28, he went in, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplied. Saul's new birth serves as another shot in the arm for the early church. He goes on to become one of the greatest missionaries that this world has ever known, advancing the hope of the gospel with the power of the Spirit throughout the entire Roman Empire, all the way to the Roman kingdom itself, before eventually dying. And so as I look at his new birth, I'm reminded of the phenomena of an earthquake erupting in the middle of an ocean. We've seen a few of these in the last couple of years where, where a massive, massive, you know, um, Richter scale breaking earthquake erupts in the middle of an ocean and then there's silence for a moment before the waters begin to rage and rush in the form of a tsunami to the shores near where the earthquake erupted. And if you've ever read about one of these, then, and if you have, or if you've ever seen on the news when they're describing one of these uh, just unbelievable phenomenons, then, then you know that, that, that what takes place in the ocean carries so much power and so much force and so much magnitude that it leads to impact on the shore. The initial impact is so powerful and so dynamic that it leads to other dynamic impacts around it. See, Saul's new birth was a transformation, but it was a transformation that was so explosive and so dynamic and so powerful that it led to other transformations around it. But that's not just Saul's testimony. That's your testimony. Imagine for a moment the people in your life right now who are in need of Jesus. The people who are in need of hearing his gospel. The people who are in need of the love that has overtaken you in Jesus Christ. The people who are in need of peace that surpasses all understanding that is guarding your heart and mind even as you go through your own peaks and valleys right now. As you imagine them, ask yourself, have I allowed the transformation that has shaken my foundation to spill out in such a way? that they have a chance to be impacted. Now, of course, there's no way to determine how big your waves are, right? Saul had some big waves, obviously, that impacted a whole lot of people. Maybe our waves won't be that big. But here's one thing we know for sure. There's an explosion happening in the water. There's an eruption happening. When you got saved, an eruption happened. And as a result, there are impacts on the shores. If you would allow yourself, you would be willing and obedient to submit yourself to the call of God and allow it to happen. The new birth doesn't just leave you changed, folks. It doesn't just leave you changed. The new birth is intended to change the people around you. Some will respond, some will not, but none should not be impacted in some way 
So let us pray, amen, that not only that, not only that we would pray that our eyes would see Jesus as he really is and be transformed by what we see, but let us also pray that the people around us feel the waves that come from the eruption in our souls, amen? Let's pray. God, we